Hi, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI in New York. I'm uh, Leonard Lopate and uh, <laughs> uh, broadcasting from my home. So sometimes we have a little, a couple of technical difficulties. Well, when she was an assistant attorney general in Minnesota, Barbara Fries cross-examined witnesses for the coal industry who were disputing the reality of climate change. Her new book called Industrial Strength Denial Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change focuses on industries that were confronted with uh, compelling evidence that they were causing harm and who responded with long and dangerously effective campaigns of corporate denial. Uh, they range from unsafe cars to tobacco to the investment products that caused the financial crisis in 2008. Her book is published by UC Press, and I'm pleased that it brings environmental attorney Barbara Fries to our show now. Welcome. Glad to have you on the show. It's a really good book. What were the circumstances that led you to cross-examine witnesses for the coal industry? Well, Minnesota had um, had a, a law passed that said to our utilities regulators that it wanted, the state wanted, to know the environmental cost of generating electricity. So it was basically like a resource planning proceeding for our Public Utilities Commission. And since most of our electricity came from coal, we focused on coal. We tried to uh, put into monetary terms the costs of various kinds of coal pollution. And that meant looking at climate change, which at that time was pretty unusual. And it really kind of struck a nerve with the coal industry, and so they intervened in the proceeding to, to explain the issue to us. Well, despite the overwhelming evidence, didn't those witnesses push back and deny facts going so far as to testify that more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from burning coal is actually a good thing? That's right. That was one of the arguments they presented. Um, they had various scientists, and some of their, uh, their scientific witnesses were a little inconsistent. You might have one saying, well, this isn't going to happen at all. Another saying, well, yes, it might, but you're going to like it. Um, and generally speaking, they were pointing to what was already a very well-established consensus within the scientific community, uh, pointing to that and saying, well, those scientists are biased. There's a financial bias or a political bias. It was always a little bit vague, but generally speaking, we were told to reject the, the mainstream scientific viewpoint, which the rest of the world had already signed a treaty based on. 
and take the perspective of their witnesses. Did they find a receptive public that wanted for any number of reasons to also deny the fact of climate change? I think much less so then, um, but of course, over time, we saw this climate denial spreading further and further. Uh, I, I think, though, it is, it is probably fair to say that in the 90s, that's when we saw um, science denial, not just around climate change, but around other issues related to regulation, starting to spread in society. So. Um, it, it went further in the course of that decade and then spread much further after that. It was kind of like watching a wildfire burn through um, certainly the, the Republican Party, as we saw many Republicans who had formerly been um, you know, concerned about climate change and actually trying to put in place policies either lose their offices or, uh, well, lose their nerves, so to speak, and decide that they didn't have to worry about this. And now the denial movement is, has been able to tap into growing populist resentments. Uh, you mentioned the Republican Party. The president has repeatedly called climate change a hoax. Yes, exactly. And and the populism you mentioned, I think that's a really important point. I mean, if you if you want to sort of go back further in, in history, um, you probably had far more people on the left who would be pointing to the establishment, so to speak, and saying that you couldn't trust it. But around, particularly around the 90s, maybe a little bit in the 80s, if you look at the tobacco industry, you saw industry sort of um, trying to encourage a, a general cynicism and a general distrust of expertise, of scientific expertise, and certainly of the kind of scientific studies and reports that governments relied on. So um, that, I mean, it was bizarre to see you know, oil companies sponsoring um, think tanks who were claiming that um, those concerned about climate science represented a, an elite that could not be trusted, because, of course, it assumed that the oil companies or, say, the Koch brothers were not part of that, were not part of an elite themselves. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, that sort of anti-expertise movement became a very big deal, and, and of course, now it is... Um, well, I, I guess I could fairly say it contributed to a world that would, to a nation that would elect Donald Trump. And so now we have a, a president who doesn't really quite believe in government or science or expertise at a time when we really need all three. Uh, do all the industries that you've profiled in your book have things in common? Well, they certainly have certain strategies in common. Um, among the things that we see in all of the industries is a kind of tribal reflex, which means that there is, I think, an immediate assumption that your critics have an ulterior motive. Um, and, and I say reflex because I really do think that at least begins as kind of a, a psychological response that probably most people have when they're faced with criticism. Um, but then I think that turns into a, a sort of corporate strategy. Um, another thing that happens is that there's a certain amount of um, sort of aggrandizing themselves and their own motives. Um, certainly one common feature we see is that when um, the social response or, or the public opinion goes against them, there's very quickly um, references to witch hunts and lynchings and, and just kind of this sense of being unfairly persecuted, a, a kind of bunker mentality emerges. So many, many of the types of denials come back again and again. 
Um, but then there are, of course, certain variations depending on the industry, like whether or not you could blame the victims. Some industries lend themselves to that. Others don't. We uh, will get to uh, some of the ones that people know a bit more about, but I thought maybe we'd talk a bit about what happened when the chemical element radium uh, became a matter of concern. It was discovered by Marie and Pierre Curie in 1898, and when did scientists understand that it could it kills living cells? Oh, they understood that immediately because the scientists who discovered it w found themselves with burns. The burns might not have been immediate. I mean, their fingers, or, or maybe they'd put a little vial of this substance in their pocket, and then a few days later they would discover that they had been burned there. So that was actually one of the very first things they knew about this substance, that plus the fact that it was phenomenally radioactive and, and incredibly mysterious compared to other elements that they knew about at the time. And wasn't it used uh, in an early version of the radiation therapy that continues today? It, exactly. And, and that was, in fact, a totally rational response. Once you discover that this substance kills cells, you start looking for cells that need killing, and, and they started using it to treat cancer, uh, specifically tumors, because they could put a little vial of it uh, next to the tumor for a few hours and then take it away, and, and that would be the form of treatment. And they could use the same radium again and again. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was actually a rational response to what they knew about this uh, element. Well, how then did radium go from being a dangerous but useful tool for fighting cancer to a for-profit product? Did right. a well, standard chemical it, company uh, actually promote the ingestion of radium to cure a wide variety of ailments, including arthritis, diabetes, and high blood pressure? That Sounds kind exactly. of like the, today's discussion about bleach and disinfectants. Well, and, and more specifically, we also heard the president talk about light as a form of therapy. And if you could somehow, you know, hit the body with a lot of light internally. And the radium industry, including Standard Chemical, which was formed specifically to exploit radium. I mean, it was a radium company and the biggest in the world. Um, they would refer to it as like, you know, being accepted by the body like sunlight is by plant life. And, mm -hmm. yeah, Standard Chemical, um, they, they got going in order to turn this dangerous and mysterious element into essentially a consumer product. And part of the problem they faced was that the cancer industry, or rather, let's say the cancer doctors, they could use the same radium again and again. And so that wasn't going to create enough demand to support the, the very expensive process of refining radium. So they made a specific effort to promote radium for internal consumption, they called it. And that meant injecting it into people's veins. They, that meant giving it to people to drink. They formed what they called the first free radium clinic, uh, in Pittsburgh, and I think it was 1913, and they ended up exposing thousands of people through injection or, or drinking radium uh, to what they called internal radium therapy. And, and they, as you said, promoted it for a wide variety of ailments for which it, of course, had absolutely no benefit, and, and even for some ailments that it actually caused, like anemia. Now, Joseph Flannery, the uh, head of Standard Chemical, was innovative, bold, uninhibited by risk, the kinds of qualities that are commonly celebrated in an industrial pioneer. Was he celebrated at the time? 
He was widely celebrated at the time. He was considered a visionary, particularly in his hometown of Pittsburgh. Um, and, you know, I, I, I end up using him as sort of an example of uh, a particular kind of person who is very ambitious, very focused on his own goals. Um, and there is some psychological evidence that people like that, and particularly people with power, uh, their goals become much more focused, they become much more determined, and they also see less risk. And so I think we can point to, to him as, as kind of that sort of a prototype. Um, as it happened, among the things he thought his, his uh, radium would be good for was he, he was promoting basically the radioactive waste that his company created to be used as a fertilizer. And he hired a botanist to do studies and to spread it around on food crops. And, and that botanist wrote a report about how it was really terrific for, for all of these different crops. Um, among the places he spread it was Joseph Flannery's own vegetable garden. Uh, so it's entirely possible that Flannery's death, which was about six years later, may have had something to do with that because anemia was listed as a contributing factor to his death. Um, so, it, you know, if he ate his own radioactive vegetables, that might have, have led to it. Or if he believed his own company's claims that his radium potions would cure anemia, if he took that, um, then, then also he, that might have contributed to his death. Environmental attorney Barbara Fries is my guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Her latest book, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to, to Climate Change. It's uh, from UC Press. Now, radium uh, glows in the dark. Is that why it began to be used in paints? Yes, they came up with a way of, of you put just a tiny, tiny amount of radium in the paint with other elements, and then, then that paint would glow, and it would be put on clock dials and watch dials so they could be read in the dark. It was also put on a lot of other consumer products that people, for some reason, thought needed to, to glow in the dark. So maybe the buttons on your slippers, or one thing that sort of horrified me was they would paint it on the eyeballs of dolls and stuffed animals. So uh, if you're a little kid and you wake up in the night. So children yeah. could be exposed to radium. Exactly. And they could also imagine all of their toys staring at them all night long as they slept. Now, weren't many factor, there, there are many factories where, where workers applied radium paint to clock and, and watch dials so that they uh, would glow in the dark? Yes. There was three I, I remember that was in, something that happened when I was a kid. And I remember my mother telling me a story that you relate here about the women who uh, painted the, the radium onto the, on the watch dials. Right. It did become briefly quite famous uh, for a while there in, in, in the 20s and, the, and, and in the 30s. And then it sort of sustained, I think, to the extent that people know about radium dangers. They know about the, the clock and watch painters. What they did was they would hire usually very young women, often teenagers, um, they, their job would be to sit in these studios with their little camel hair brushes and paint the radium-containing paint onto the dials. And the way they kept their paint brushes nice and pointed was to point them with their lips. So it's called lip pointing. And inevitably, these young women consumed a lot of radium. They were told, by the way, that, that radium was good for them. It would put a glow in their cheeks if they got any, 
if they had consumed any, um, and and of course they believed that. And then what happened was eventually many of them started getting quite sick. Their teeth would start to fall out, um, and eventually their jaws would actually start to uh, crumble, uh, rot in place. It was quite horrible, and then their diseases would progress, and there were several gruesome deaths that, that were actually very much focused on by the newspapers at the time. And, and the industry complained that it was being unfairly penalized for the generosity it had shown in hiring illness-prone workers, they, they're blaming <laughs> the women for being illness-prone? Yeah, that was one of the most horrific denials that I saw, certainly from the radium industry, um, the industry that had hired these women. Well, they, they basically denied that their condition had anything to do with radium. They said that this was very light work. And so, uh, as you noted, they said that they had they had hired folks who were illness-prone, I think at one point just referred to them as cripples, and then said that when their um, diseases naturally progressed, they were unfairly blamed for it and, and punished for their generosity. And one thing to keep in mind is that when some of these claims were being made, uh, it was already known that these women had radioactive breath and that their bones were radioactive. And obviously having your jaws dissolve, having your facial bones dissolve is not exactly a, a typical um, development in any sort of pre-existing condition. But not all of the, the women got sick, so how is that explained? Right, and, that's, and I think that's one of the things that made it easier to blame those who did get sick. Um, I think the general explanation is just that people's response to radioactivity varies. Uh, so some of them would got very, very sick and died, and, and others didn't. So is this similar to uh, lead in paint? Uh, well, Were the same people involved? No, it would have been different people involved, yeah. But, but it, you know, similar in the sense of overlooking a lot of the risks. Uh, and also uh, assuring people that this was a good thing for their homes. Right, yeah. Now, uh, bad drivers don't cause, uh, bad drivers cause car accidents, but can't engineering solutions help to make the accidents that do happen less lethal? Yes, absolutely. And, and that's the, the theme um, that I try to focus on the most in the chapter on auto safety. What you had was an industry that kept the focus on what causes the accident and then didn't look at all on what causes the injury so that they would basically declare that if drivers do everything they should, there won't be any accidents, so society should train drivers, and, and of course society should build safer roads, but then they would really go into denial over the subject of whether you should, for example, put in a seat belt or take those sharp and pointy things out of the dashboard so that when people flew into them, they didn't have their... Uh, bodies gouged by them. So yes, that that was um, there was a lot of denial, both about whether the industry had any responsibility at all for making their cars safer when they did crash, and then a lot of denial around the more specific questions about whether it was helpful to wear a seatbelt as opposed to just holding on tight in the case of an accident. If we can attribute terrible events to the foolish behavior of individuals. Uh, perhaps we feel less worried that such events will happen to us. But 
why were car manufacturers so opposed to adding safety features such as seat belts and, and padded dashboards? It couldn't have added all that much more uh, expense to manufacturing the cars. Yeah, I think that's a really good question, and especially when the United States was devoting itself so wholeheartedly to the automobile culture with the building the interstates and the suburbs and the drive-ins and everything. But one of the arguments that they came up with, um, and this is now mainly in the 50s, was to, to say that if, if people have to think about accidents, they won't have as much fun driving. They were trying to make the notion of driving super fun, and, and if you thought about death and crashing, then it wouldn't be. So, so that was one of that, well, that was, I think, their motivation. It was sort of a behind-the-scenes motivation. It's not what they said. I mean, their denials were more the opposite. They would say, for example, that if people had seatbelts, um, they would drive recklessly, and so because they would feel invulnerable. It was almost the opposite of, of what I think was a more likely what was really motivating them. And Howard Gandalot, the chief auto safety engineer for General Motors, suggested in 1954 that a seatbelt wouldn't offer any more protection than a driver keeping his hands firmly on the wheel and mm. correctly positioning his feet and legs. Yeah, that sort of denial was really astonishing to me because what you need to understand was how powerful GM was at the time. It was called, you know, I think what's called the world's leading industrial enterprise, and it hired so many engineers. And, and this was the chief safety engineer who apparently didn't seem to believe in safety engineering. And, um, you know, that was really frustrating when you think about the rising death toll on the highways and, and the ability of this industry to do the necessary research to figure out what would help and their reluctance to do that. We had a government official saying what's good for General Motors is good for America. Mm -hmm. But how did they uh, deal with the, the issue of children being protected? Uh, uh, sudden the, stops, the for same... example, or uh, other things uh, of where they might, needed, might have needed to be braced. Right. Well, the same engineer you just quoted actually had views on that subject, too. He received a letter from a, a father who had written to GM and said he had to break suddenly and, and his little son had flown into the dashboard and lost a couple of teeth and, mm. and he was writing to suggest that maybe they should pad the dashboard and that would make it safer. And he gets a letter back from this same engineer saying, you know, he, he understands why the little ones want to stand up in the car and look out the windows and, and stand on the seats and whatnot. But then he had made a practice with his own children of, of teaching them um, at the command, he would shout, hands, and they would put their hands on the dashboard. And, and sometimes, he said, he would just pump the brakes a little bit so everybody kept in practice. Uh, so, yeah, e even, even with the children, his approach was just brace yourself. So it was better than child seats. Oh, well, child seats, yeah, were, were nowhere considered yet. That would be much later, but that was better even than a seatbelt. Ford had its own problems with the Pinto, but unlike GM, it did add some safety improvements in the 1950s. Uh, so it did. They, they saw this as giving them a competitive edge? Right. There was kind of a split in the industry. I think the year was 1956 here. And Ford was facing a, a really tough year of competition with GM, and they didn't have many big changes in the next 
uh, season, and they were trying to figure out what to do, and they decided that they were actually going to make their cars safer. There were, by this time, folks who were really pushing them to do things, others outside the industry who had done some research. So they were going to make uh, seat belts an available option, factory installed. They were going to add a few other safety features, and unusually, they were going to advertise this. They were going to really sell safety. And that was not something the industry had been doing, and, and the safety advocates of the time were very happy about it. But Ford came under tremendous pressure from GM, specifically from GM, which had so much market power at the time that it was really capable of influencing it, even its competitors on these issues. And within a few months, Ford sort of stopped advertising these products, stopped advertising safety features, and what could have been some real momentum building within the industry was stopped. Safety glass being another. Uh, didn't some auto manufacturers suggest that if drivers had safe, safer cars, their resulting overconfidence would lead them to drive more recklessly? Exactly. That was one of the objections to using seat belts, that it would just encourage the nuts to, to go too fast. And so, right, that was again, one of the more transparent denials, particularly when you had an industry that was selling these incredibly powerful cars with, with speedometers that went up to, you know, 120 miles per hour and these enormous engines and, and were selling cars using speed and, and invulnerability and power. Uh, clearly, they were doing an awful lot to encourage reckless driving, or at least weren't worried about discouraging it when they made cars like that. Senator Abraham Ribicoff of, of Connecticut held congressional hearings on auto safety in the 1960s. So what was the role of Ralph Nader in, at those hearings? Oh, Ralph Nader played a huge role in this. He had graduated from Harvard Law School, and he had made auto safety an issue of his. He told a story once about having earlier in his life come upon an auto accident where a young girl had been decapitated in a, in a low-speed uh, crash by um, the opening of the glove compartment door. And so, in, in any event, he became very motivated to, to work on auto safety. He initially worked as sort of a staffer for the Ribicoff Committee. Later, they were going to make him a witness. They did make him a witness. And also, he wrote the famous book, Unsafe at Any Speed, which came out in 1965. Right. Um, but then, around the time that he was going to testify, later in 1966, I think this was, uh, he starts noticing some funny things. He thinks he's being followed. Mm -hmm. And he hears from his friends and colleagues that an investigator is, is contacting them and asking all kinds of questions about, his, about him, about his politics, about his sexuality, about anything that could potentially seem scandalous. Um, he finds himself propositioned in, in sort of strange situations by two different women, um, it, and he starts to think he's being, they're trying to lure him into some kind of compromising position. He goes to the New York Times and complains. The papers put it on the front page that he thinks he's being followed by the auto industry. Auto industry denies it. Um, Senator Ribicoff asks the Justice Department to look into it because you are not allowed to be intimidating congressional witnesses like this. Uh, and then GM says, oh, um, actually, yes, that was us. We are having him investigated. They denied some of the 
things that that Nader had complained about, including the women. But yes, they had in high, they had hired an investigator. They had been checking up on him in all kinds of ways. They got dragged before the Ribikoff committee and had to apologize. And most people of that era directly connect that particular scandal with the passage of motor vehicle safety legislation in 1966, finally, after many, many years of trying to get that to happen. Because the auto industry's defensive reaction uh, had a negative uh, impact and the uh, the, the public uh, uh, now wanted some changes, but the battles over safety design continued for years, including a decades-long fight over airbags. Oh, yes, exactly. And, and none of these... Uh, none of the, the, the laws that I talk about end the issue. These are all sort of episodes and ongoing, uh, ongoing disputes. But, of course, with the auto industry, there were, as you say, uh, lots of fights over airbags. And, and then, of course, there continue to be over various defects within automobiles and should they be recalled and whatnot. Um, but the, the chapter that I focus on is really about this initial question of whether the industry has any responsibility at all to try to make cars safer, and the process of, of, of their denial, and then the nation deciding, oh, yes, we really do think um, that you as an industry have this responsibility, and that government has a role in making sure you fulfill it. So that contributed to the consumer movement and the belief in corporate social accountability. Absolutely. And in, and in fact, more directly than you might think, because Ralph Nader sued GM and part of the settlement money he got went into creating various um, consumer organizations that continued then to, to work not just on auto safety, but on a lot of other issues. And, and in fact, that's how I personally got involved um, for a year between college and law school. I worked at one of those Nader groups, health research group. And uh, I think I was you know, part of a, of a whole generation of people who were sort of inspired to think, well, we, we don't just have to sit helplessly by and watch these problems unfold. There, there is, uh, companies do have a social responsibility, and the public has the ability to insist that they behave responsibly. You're listening to Leonard Located at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. What cigarette do you smoke? You'll be interested to know how the doctors of America answered that question. Tens of thousands of doctors, doctors in all parts of the country, in every state of the union, doctors in every branch of medicine were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? In this nationwide survey of general practitioners, surgeons, throat specialists, diagnosticians, and so on, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Try Camels yourself. Make the one sensible cigarette test. Make your own 30-day Camel mildness test in your T-zone. Smoke only Camels for 30 days. Enjoy Camels' rich, full flavor. And see how well Camels agree with your throat. Pack after pack, week after week. See for yourself why camels are so popular with the doctors of America. We'll be talking about cigarette smoking in just a while. Uh, my guest is Barbara Fries, author of Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change. And uh, 
Barbara, I hope you'll just be patient because uh, I want to get right back to our conversation. But first, I need to take a few minutes to address something of great importance to WBAI, this radio station. It's our spring pledge drive. And um, I would like to say thanks to everyone who has contributed during this drive. Uh, if you're able to support the programming we bring you every day on Leonard Lopez at Large, we're asking you to please step up and make a contribution right now during this break by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, give to wbaiorg And joining me now via phone um, is my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Um, and Jesse, uh, you're going to tell uh, the listeners about a unique offer that we're making during this drive? Hi, Leonard. Yes, I am. Hi. Now, people who were tuning in, our listeners who were tuning in last week, will have, have heard this offer before. But there are just a few spots left on what we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. This is a Zoom call uh, you, nine other listeners, and Leonard Lopate, you can ask him whatever you want. You can uh, say, tell him whatever you want about, about the, the role that this show uh, and his broadcasting career has played in your life. Now, again, this is My Dinner with Leonard is the name of the, of the premium. In order to get this, it's very simple. All you have to do is is sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Now, a BAI buddy is a sustaining member of the station who spreads out. By sustaining, we mean you spread your contribution out throughout the year. Instead of, say, one payment of $240, you make uh, 12 monthly payments of $20 a piece. It doesn't hit you all at once. Uh, it, and, and it also allows the station to plan for the future. So, again, that's a BAI buddy. If you want to have uh, dinner with Leonard Lopate, virtually that is. And the way to do that, to become a BAI buddy, is by going to the web, to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give, then the number two, WBAI.org. Or you can give us a call, give the call center a call at 516 516- Six two zero three six zero two. Just in case you didn't have a pen, let me give those out again. The website is give to wbai.org, and the phone number is five one six six two zero three six zero two. Now, Leonard. Wait, wait, Jesse. Uh, I, I want to make it yes, clear that you don't have to become a BAI buddy for twenty dollars a month. You could do it for ten dollars a month, or fifteen dollars. Very a month. good point. Or on the other hand, thirty dollars a month, or fifty dollars a month, whatever level you feel comfortable with. And Jesse, wasn't there originally 10 uh, openings now, just four? We're down to four. And again, I believe for, to be eligible for this, for my dinner with Leonard, it needs to be at least a $10 a month contribution. But come on, this is not a, this is not a lot of scratch we're asking you here for. And, uh, you know, Leonard and I have been talking up the, the, the possibilities of what you could ask him, but this is also a chance for you to get to know some of your fellow listeners. You know, we're always talking about how uh, we have this wonderful community of Leonard Lopate at large listeners. Our show might not have the biggest audience, but I think we have perhaps the most engaged audience of any show on the radio dial. Our audience, every time I meet listeners, it is, it is such a thrill 
uh, first of all, how good a memory they have, Leonard, of questions you might have asked several years ago, but also uh, just the, the joy. And, and you, that's a difficult thing to, to fake. When someone tells you that, that you really play an important part of the, in their day, I don't know what kind of nicer uh, compliments someone in our field could get. So, we're, again, the number is 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give2wbai.org. If you want to become uh, a buddy and also come to the dinner, I think you just uh, ask for the dinner, uh, And but you don't have to. You can. We do hope that you will... Uh, give the, your, your support in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And uh, to repeat, we need all of our listeners to step up right now. Go to that website, give to WBAI.org, uh, the number two, or call 516-620-3602 to help keep the show and this station on the air. Um, as Jesse was saying, the next four listeners who sign up to become BAI buddies in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will be invited to attend this teleconference with me that we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. Uh, we're going to do it, I guess, on Zoom. This is going to be a Zoom teleconference. You and Leonard, uh, you know, one-on-one -on -one times ten, so to speak. But but just a, a handful of people. The size of a large dinner is what we were going for. And, you know, th this this is the first time you've ever done something like this, right, Leonard? I mean, I know you've, you've had listener events before, uh, mm -hmm. But you've never had an actual uh, a virtual, like a, a, a video call with, with people before, have you? No. Uh, in fact, uh, even when we were able to, to meet people face-to-face, -face, it was generally me uh, with somebody like today's guest uh, at the 92nd Street Y or at the New York Public Library or some other venue. Uh, and then we would get some uh, questions from the audience. But this is something totally different. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, people, uh, we can talk about some of the incredible guests I've interviewed over the years, including uh, former presidents and uh, people who ran for president and people who are running for president. Uh, so uh, I, I would love to meet you all. Uh, you don't, we're asking you to support WBAI right now, uh, but if you don't want to become a buddy, you, we still would hope that you would uh, give us some kind of contribution to help us get through this rough time because the uh, the the uh, pandemic has really hurt our fundraising, not just ours, Jesse. I, I think it's pretty much all nonprofits right now have have been hurt. Sixty percent of funding for public radio stations across the country wow. is, is is the figure that I saw. This is everywhere, and I'm sure that for a lot of people at home, as so many of us are uncertain about the future, you might be thinking, oh, my God, I, contributing to a public radio station, well, that's, that's just a, I don't have space in my head right now for this, in my heart. <laughs> but the fact is you're listening to us, and why is that? Well, we hope that maybe we bring some light out of the darkness. We're all isolated right now, but fortunately we can be connected through the magic of radio but we got to uh, make ends meet, so to speak, as a community radio station. But as also, a station, we got to. As we always put it, as, as a station without underwriting of any kind, the 
only way we can do that is with That's right. Support. We rely totally on our listeners for our support. And remember, we have the, the normal kinds of bills to pay, rent, electricity, gas, but we also have to pay for our antenna and for equipment and for fixing equipment and all sorts of other things. Uh, those, those, we don't, nobody's going to forgive us uh, those costs, we, and we really need to make up for incredible losses right now. We've always worked on the kind of this skin of our teeth, but even more now than ever. So we really hope that you will give us that call, uh, 516-620-3602, and a reminder that you can ask me anything within reason, non-libelous, uh, at this event, uh, Leonard Lopate, uh, uh, Dinner with Leonard. Uh, so Please make that contribution right now in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. Jesse, anything else you want to add? Just giving out the information one last time. My dinner with Leonard for a monthly contribution of $10 or more. You can uh, share dinner or conversation or just a, a beverage of your choice with Leonard Lopate and nine other listeners. This is for 10 uh, sustaining members who make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. In order to do that, go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give then the number two, WBAI.org. Or you can call 516-620-3602. And, and very quickly, before I, I, I let you get back to this fascinating conversation with Barbara Fries, I just wanted to say that, that just to frame this as this is not a normal pledge drive. What we're asking, we know, is a message that only some people are, are able to receive right now. We know that a lot of people are in distress. If you're not, if you're one of the lucky ones who is still secure throughout all this uncertainty uh, with your financial future, even enough just to make a $20 a month contribution, you are basically could be the difference whether we are able to survive all of this insanity and i don't think i have to tell you why we think that's important because that's all we've been doing so please uh, make that contribution today in the name of leonard Lopate at large and from all of us at the station and at the show thank you very much and thank you jesse and uh, we return now to barbara freeze who's uh, latest she's her previous book was coal a human history uh, the latest is Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change, published by UC Press. Uh, let's talk a bit about uh, automobile, uh, about smoking. After all, that's what uh, I played that little plug for. Well, that was a regular ad for camels. Wasn't it kind of shocking? Yeah, I've not heard that particular ad, and, and it was a wonderful uh, example of it. Uh, the industry, of course, did for a very long time um, advertise its own sort of – well, each brand would portray itself as being milder than others. And so that was their way of dealing with the, the health issue that everybody kind of knew about just because of the costs and things. And they, they said sort of, and doctors were endorsing it, but they also argued that uh, – uh, they blame lung cancer on air pollution, and that cigarettes actually reduce the risk of cancer by alleviating stress. That that was among the denials that were floated, yeah. And and one of the main arguments that they made from the very beginning was to try to blame lung cancer on something in the person's constitution. They actually 
referred to this as the constitutional argument, and I think the best way to in interpret that was that they were arguing basically that there was something perhaps genetic that makes people who are likely to get cancer also be the kind of people who are likely to smoke. So that, that's how they tried to um, handle the incredible correlation between smoking and lung cancer. When the, the heads of several tobacco companies were asked under oath before a congressional committee in 1994 if nicotine was addictive, didn't most of them reply that they believed it was not? Was uh, right. that belief-based wording uh, intended to protect them from later charges of, of, of perjury? Yeah, I, I think very clearly it was. I mean, the, the wording was pretty uniform across all of the, the heads of, of those tobacco companies. Um, and, and the other thing is they were sort of playing a game, I think, where they were interpreting uh, addiction to be something more like intoxication, so that if tobacco didn't intoxicate you, it merely made you keep smoking more and more and more. Uh, they, were, they were trying to interpret that as being something other than addiction. But yes, it's that I believe language that really did keep them, I think, from getting charged with perjury. Though they all did lose their jobs within about a year because the industry was trying to, to move on and get past the tremendous embarrassment that that particular hearing caused them. Especially after the EPA declared secondhand smoke responsible for thousands of deaths among non-smokers. Mm -hmm. Was this the beginning of the industry's ties with libertarian and conservative groups? That the same people who have, uh, we're seeing protesting other things today? Right. That does appear to have begun around the, around the mid-90s. The industry was really upset about the fact that the EPA was, was really starting to point to how many folks were dying from secondhand smoke, which meant that their earlier denial, which was that the smoker assumed the risk, no longer really worked. And so we, there are documents that were released um, through litigation that showed them um, having PR firms come up with proposals, and, and one in particular proposed um, trying to, to get all of EPA's enemies together against them, so trying to create this mosaic, because they understood, they clearly understood that the tobacco industry had very low credibility. Uh, so that was certainly something that they... Um, that they proposed, and, and others have talked about how these uh, groups then were, were formed, and, and you saw um, anti-regulatory think tanks emerging. Um, and they would then usually not just focus on one issue, but on several. They might focus on tobacco, but also climate change, and throw in a little denial related to ozone depletion for good measure, because in fact that issue had already been resolved. And I've even seen some denying that slavery was was a, a negative thing. Maybe we can get to that. We don't have a lot of time. But uh, the although the industry publicly opposed the 1964 five law uh, that required cigarette packs to include a warning about health hazards, didn't they secretly want that law? Exactly, because since one of their main arguments was always going to be that the smoker assumed the risk. They needed to be able to say that the smoker had been warned. So while they publicly opposed these warnings, which were pretty mild on the cigarette package, um, it did allow them to make that assumption of risk argument in the many lawsuits that would be brought against them, uh, and which they, they never lost and never settled for a very long time. 
Are there any similarities between tobacco company executives denying the link between smoking and lung cancer and the financial industry denying its part in the 2008 financial crisis? Well, I think in all of these cases, there's there's a lot of similarity. As between those two industries, I think um, certainly the the sort of believing in, in the case of the tobacco industry that it's the smoker's choice, uh, and then the financial industry uh, employing a kind of caveat emptor uh, rationale so that if their clients were buying investment products that have, were based on risky subprime mortgages that would eventually collapse, um, well, you know, that was their problem because they were supposedly sophisticated investors, though we also found a lot of documents emerging later where the, the same banks that were uh, using that sort of defense would also be talking about what idiots their investors were or, or Muppets or, or clearly disparaging them behind the scenes. Uh, and weren't the bankers just as indifferent to deceiving their institutional investors, such as pension funds? Oh, yes, exactly. I mean, I think that institutional investors in particular, it, it was easier to pretend that they knew what was going on when, in fact, very few people knew what was going on because the financial industry had created these products that were so profoundly complex, and they had essentially – gotten the ratings agencies to give them very high safety ratings for very dangerous products. Um, and the ratings agencies were sort of bought into the whole culture that, uh, well, if, if they gave an honest rating that indicated the risk of the product, they would lose business to another ratings agency. And they also ended up taking a, a fairly short-term perspective on all of these. One of the, the little slogans that emerged from the financial industry was, was the phrase, I'll be gone, you'll be gone, IBG, YBG, which would be the response if somebody said, well, wait a minute, what, what's going to happen if this, if this investment product explodes in a couple of years? Well, they, the industry members would, would say, well, we'll be gone. And that same short-term perspective went into the ratings agencies, which meant that you know, the system designed to protect the public um, in the private sector wasn't there. And at the same time, the, the public sector efforts to, to protect against reckless behavior had been blocked by an industry arguing that it could regulate itself. Does the abstract nature of finance make it easier to see it as just a big game? Uh, did the bankers themselves completely understand their complex investment products like collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps? Well, I think there's a lot of evidence that they did not understand what they were selling, and certainly the people buying it did not understand what they were buying. And and I, I think, yes, it, it, uh, the abstract nature absolutely made it easier to, to see this as a game. One of the things that psychologists tell us is that it is much easier to cause harm to others when you don't know who they are. They are unidentified victims, and they are far away. And so if you are uh, selling financial products to a pension fund, you don't know the pensioners, and, and you don't know how much they will suffer when their pension fund um, disappears. You'll never meet them, and by then you may have moved on to a different job. Uh, so, yes, I think the financial industry is particularly abstract, and its impact is particularly dispersed and distant, and all of those things make it much easier to deny the harm you may be causing. 
And, uh, and unlike the savings and loan scandals of the 1980s, when over 1,000 bankers were convicted of felonies, there were no uh, criminal convictions here. In fact, the bailouts and the high incomes on Wall Street, uh, even during the crisis, uh, uh, seem to have gone on uh, unabated, haven't they? Right. There was, there was, I think, one criminal conviction of a sort of a mid-level person at, at one of the major banks, uh, and otherwise nobody in the major banks uh, really was criminally convicted. No. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's just – I think this has led to part of, of just this kind of toxic residue uh, in the United States today. Politically, there remains so much anger over that crisis and the response to it and – certainly insufficient accountability from the industry that caused it. Now, you cover a number of, uh, of other uh, industries. Uh, we can't get to them all because we're pretty much out of time, but I, uh, why did you decide to include the slave trade as an example of corporate denial? It seems very different from the other topics you're exploring here. Yeah, it, that was, was it like a modern commercial industry, the Atlantic slave trade? Surprisingly so, and and I want to be clear. I'm talking here about the British slave trade because Britain dominated the slave trade in the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, and there was an abolition movement at the end of the 1700s, which prompted the industry to mount this very well organized campaign of denial, and they did it in writing. And we have lots of pamphlets now, so we know what they said. Um, and I, I included it, uh, it mainly because it was just such an extreme example of what a lucrative industry is capable of rationalizing. And, and they were modern in the sense that they worked together. They um, actually collected a levy on some of the slave-grown products to help defend themselves. Um, and while these were not exactly the same as the kind of modern corporations we have, you still had the same sort of distant ownership far-flung um, systems of, of, well, I suppose we could call it commerce, but, but it was commerce in the context of the slave trade, so that word doesn't quite fit. So in many and ways, they, it was they, very modern. We're pretty much out of time. They did claim that the slaves were better off than they uh, were in Africa. We're pretty much out of time, unfortunately. My great thanks to Barbara Fries for being our guest today. Um, I, uh, I hope you will you call 516-620-3602. Go to our website, give to WBAI.org to show your support of the station. Tomorrow, uh, we hope you'll join us when my guest will be Ben Catcher, whose new book, The Dairy at Restaurant, tells the story of how Jewish dairy restaurants became a staple of American dining before mostly vanishing outside of New York City. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.